Although salvation in one sense occurs at one point in time. As theologians, they call that justification. That is the point in time where you are declared righteous. You repent of your sins. You place your faith in Christ. And at one point, God declares you to be righteous. That's what we call justification. But also, you're probably familiar that justification actually begins a long, slow process that we call sanctification that is the process of slowly but surely, in a sense, living up to your justification, becoming more and more like Christ. And if you're like me, for a lot of us, it's typically two steps forward, one step back, and you sort of go up and back. But you should be progressing towards Christ's likeness. It's interesting, in the book Pilgrim's Progress, which next to the Bible is the second most popular source of Christian literature in the history of the church. It sold more copies than any other Christian book than the Bible. Of course, John Bunyan was the author. But the main character, Christian, is not taken immediately to the celestial city when the burden falls off his back. If you remember the story, and a lot of you no doubt have read it, he's got a burden on his back that symbolizes his sin burden. And when he makes his way to the cross, that burden and falls off his back and falls down to the hill, but he is not immediately taken to the celestial city. Matter of fact, that's just the early in the book. It's the very, very beginning of his journey. He actually begins a long, difficult journey whereby he encounters a lot of trials and difficulties. He encounters friends that help him. He's able to help others, and he eventually makes his way sometime later to the celestial city. In the same way, when we are saved, we're not taken immediately to heaven. We're saved to serve. And the only way that we can effectively serve is as and if we are growing and changing to become more like Jesus Christ. And we'll see in our passage that if we aren't growing, if we aren't changing, it's going to be impossible to serve Christ properly. So with that in mind, I want to talk about salvation's progress. And I want to start, the first point will be the divine call to salvation. We see that in verses 3 and 4. Let me just once again read verse 3. According as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him that's called us to glory and virtue. What does Peter mean when he speaks of God calling us at the end of verse 3? Well, this is what theologians often refer to as the effectual call to salvation. It refers to God's drawing us to salvation. It's the same thing that's mentioned in Romans chapter 8 and verse 30, for instance, where Paul says, Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. It's our word. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. You have a link there, almost like a chain link, and each one of these links are involved in our salvation, but part of that is God's calling us, His drawing us to salvation. And all those that are called, at least in that sense, will ultimately be justified and glorified, according to Romans 8 and verse 30. Peter himself, writing in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of Him who has called you, drawn you out of lightness, out of darkness, into His marvelous light. So once again, we have the call to salvation that Peter is referring to here. So with mind in mind, let's look, what is the source of that call? Again, the first part of verse 3, we see that the divine power of Almighty God is listed as the source of that call. 
Um, also, it's said there to be given, which has the idea of endowed or uh, freely given. In other words, it's not something that can be earned. Salvation is something that God freely offers, but it's not something that we can work for. And I tell you what, that's a good thing, because if we'd have to work to get it, we'd have to work to keep it. And I don't know about you, but I don't trust myself that I'd be able to keep it. It's only God that graciously and freely gives us that. And matter of fact, if you think about it, only the divine power of God would be powerful enough to take a sinner who was born dead in their trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1, and give them spiritual life and raise them to walk in newness of life. Only the divine power of God can resurrect like that. The same power that resurrected Christ from the dead is the power that's available to give us new life in Christ. So it's the divine power of God that is the source of this call. And also notice that at the end of verse 3, how it's obtained, it's through the knowledge of Him that's called us to glory and virtue. Now, knowledge in this context is definitely more than just a head knowledge. Matter of fact, throughout the Bible, when you read of knowledge or of knowing, whether it's in reference to God knowing something or a man like Adam knowing his wife, oftentimes in the Bible, knowledge has the idea of not just a head knowledge, but an intimate knowledge. A relationship, if you will. Let me give you an example of that. Amos chapter 3 and verse 2, the Lord speaking to the nation of Israel says, Ye only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. Now, he's not saying you're the only nation on the earth that I recognize exists. In other words, it's not that he was not aware of the existence of the other nations. He's omniscient. He knows of every nation. He knows of every individual. So he knew of all the other nations, but only Israel did he have that special or intimate knowledge toward. Only they knew him in that capacity, in that way. So when we're talking about knowledge of God here, or knowledge of Him, we're talking about a relationship with Him. Even today, we will often speak of a person coming to know Christ. We're not talking about they came to hear about Him for the very first time necessarily. We're talking about them coming to enter into an intimate relationship with Him. Alright? So here Peter is talking about these... God has drawn us toward Himself with this call. We've come, we've received that uh, through the knowledge of Him. And also note that it says He's called us to glory and virtue. You can take that one of two ways. One possibility is that we come to share in His glory and virtue when we get saved. By the way, virtue there has the idea of excellence. And we're going to talk more about that in a second, but moral excellence. So, one possibility is, alright, we get saved. We come to the knowledge of Him, so we share in His glories. Another possibility, you could translate that little word to there actually as by, that preposition in the Greek could be translated by, so it could be saying by glory and virtue. And in that case, it would be saying that Christ's glory and virtue is what initially attracts us to Him. In other words, we come to recognize that He is glorious. We come to recognize His moral excellencies. We see that in Him as we read that about Him, and that attracts us to Him, and that's part of the call to Him. So that's a possibility as well. But the bottom line is that the source of our call to salvation is the divine power of Almighty God. But let me also see in this verse the sufficiency of that call. 
Okay, God is the source of the call, but let's see that it's sufficient. Notice in the middle of verse 3 that He has given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness. I want to focus on that little word all. And interestingly enough, the word all in the Greek means all. But that's exactly what it means. In other words, there's no exceptions. He hasn't given us some things we need for life and godliness. He's given us everything we need. Now, what is life and godliness? Life would be spiritual life, okay, as opposed to physical life. Obviously, we're already alive physically. But He gives us everything we need for spiritual life, new birth, if you will. And godliness would be the God-pleasing activity that flows from it. Or you could put it another way. He gives us everything we need for both our initial justification and our subsequent sanctification at the moment we're saved. He gives us everything. In other words, we don't need anything in addition to that. Practically speaking, that means we do not need a second work of grace. We do not need a subsequent step of faith after salvation that brings us to some higher life or abundant life or something like that after we're saved. We don't need a 12-step help program. We don't need Christianized psychology or anything else outside of Scripture, outside of the Holy Spirit of God and the Word of God that He applies to our heart. We need nothing outside of that to live a life that pleases God, to be content, to have joy, to have peace, and ultimately to grow in sanctification. Everything that we need, we are given at the point of salvation. And that's so in contrast to what we're often taught today. There are some individuals today, even in evangelical circles, that are teaching that, you know, the Bible is sufficient for the gospel and salvation, but if you want help with life's problems, you've got to go to other sources. For instance, let me give you a quote from a well-known Christian psychologist who makes this statement. Surely there are times, many times, when a sensitive, psychologically trained, committed Christian counselor can help people through psychological techniques with psychological insights that God has allowed us to discover, but that He has not chosen to reveal in the Bible. The Word of God never claims to have all the answers to all of life's problems. I would like to very respectfully disagree with that statement because the Bible does indeed claim to have all the answers to all of life's problems. For instance, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, well-known passage says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be perfect, and that means mature or complete. Truly furnished unto every good work. Simply put, equipped to do anything that God wants me to do. In other words, the Word of God is sufficient to make me complete in Christ. It's sufficient to equip me for everything I need to do for Christ. There is nothing I lack or nothing I need. Paul in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 10 tells us that we are complete in Him, which is the head of all principality and power. In other words, we are complete in Christ. We need nothing else. You know, it's interesting, this modern approach to Christian psychology, basically what it does, it just takes secular psychology with all of its humanistic, worldly presuppositions that man is inherently good and, you know, man just needs a little bit of help and sort of welds that with a few Bible verses here and there and comes up with this integrationist approach that 
comes up with Christian psychology, but all that does, unfortunately, is it, it deals with symptoms. It never deals with root problems, which is the sinful heart of mankind. And at, very, at the very best it can do is deal with symptoms. And another thing it does, it shifts responsibility from us for our sinfulness. It makes everything that we're engaged in a, a disease. And it's really not our fault. But the bottom line is, the call is sufficient. Everything that we need, we've been given at the point of salvation. But also, thirdly, we see under the divine call to salvation, we also see the surety of the call in verse 4. And let me read that again. It says, Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world through lust. In other words, our eternal security is bound up in the very great and precious promises of Almighty God. Precious having the idea of valuable beyond calculation. In other words, we are not... Assured of our salvation in our own strength, it, it is nothing that we can do, but God's promises we can claim. And God's promises, He never goes back on His word. He's given us these great and precious promises. It reminds me of the promises He made in the Old Testament with all the, the covenants, for instance, the Abrahamic covenant. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 17 and 18, speaking of that, says, Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of His counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we may have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay a hold upon the hope set before us. So when God makes a promise, He never goes back on His word. I suppose if the God of the Abrahamic covenant, the God of the Noahic covenant, the God of the Davidic covenant, and of all those messianic promises in the Old Testament that were fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, I suppose if He ever goes back on His word or ever did go back on His word in the past, then we would have reason to doubt our salvation. But if that God is indeed immutable, He never changes, He never goes back in His word, then we are eternally secure. And we can rest on those promises. And in verse 4, we also see evidence that we are already partakers in those promises in that we've escaped, we've, we've been partaker of a divine nature or a new nature, and we've escaped the corruption that's in the world through lust. Reminds me of 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. If you're a believer, although you're not perfect and you're not sinless, you have received a new nature. You're a new creature in Christ. And there ought to be definite changes in your life to indicate that. Alright, 2 Corinthians 3.18, speaking of sanctification, says, But we all with open face, beholdings in the glass, the glory of the Lord, are changed. That's literally metamorphosized. Comes from the Greek word metamorpho, under the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. So if you've been saved, you ought to be changing. As you read the Word, and as you pray, and as you go to church and hear the Word, that the Spirit applies the Word to your heart, and it changes you. It metamorphosizes you. You're not the same person that you used to be. If you are, there's a problem. There's no evidence that you've been saved. It doesn't mean you're perfect, but you ought to be changing. So you have this new nature that God has given you. And the thing about a nature, a nature determines appetite. Let me illustrate that. You can take a pig who has the nature of a pig. And you can take that pig and you can give it a bath. And you can put a ribbon on it. And you can put perfume on it. 
Alright, and you can clean it up real nice. But let me ask a question. What's that pig going to do the minute it gets a chance to go back into the mud? What's it going to do? It's going to run right back into the mud. And the reason for that is because it's got the nature of a pig. You can clean it up on the outside, but at heart, it's still a pig. And so the bottom line is our nature will determine our appetite. Therefore, at the end of verse 4, if you're really a new creature in Christ, you should be experiencing this idea of escaping the corruption that's in the world through lust. In other words, we should be getting victory over our lustful desires and over the world and over the flesh and so forth. You know, it's, it's so discouraging to me to see so many Christians today, or at least professing Christians, that sort of have this idea that as opposed to escaping the corruption that's in the world through lust, we're supposed to be imitating the world. And therefore, there's a Christian alternative to everything the world has to offer, it seems like. And there's so many Christians trying to be like the world. Whereas the biblical picture is we're to escape the world. And being able to escape it and get victory over it is one of the evidences that we have a new nature. All right, which is one of the evidences of our salvation. So, that's the divine call to salvation. Let me move on secondly, verses 5 to 7, to our diligent cooperation, not in salvation, but I'm going to change my word, in sanctification. Our diligent cooperation in sanctification. And here's the reason I changed my word. Because when it comes to our initial salvation, our justification, if you will, there is not one iota of effort that we can contribute to our own salvation. God does it all. Christ does it all. It's through His sacrifice. It's by grace through faith. I receive it freely as a gift. It's told by the grace of God. There is not one thing I can do to cooperate with God in my initial salvation. However, when it comes to sanctification, it's different. Because sanctification is indeed a cooperative effort between me and God. And let me show you that, show you that again in verse 5. It says, And besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and so, and so on. Give all diligence means, means literally, and this is the effort needed, to bring every effort to. It has the idea of doing one's best, doing one's best, or working every, very, very hard, making every effort alongside of God. So we have this picture: God certainly is the power source. The Holy Spirit is the engine of change. I can't change myself; only He can change me. But I cooperate with Him in that as He changes me. It reminds me of uh, what Paul says in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. He says there, Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But then he goes on, For it's God which works in you, both to will and do of his good pleasure. So taking that in combination, there's a biblical balance here. I'm to work out what God has already worked in. I'm to work out my own salvation, but the only way I can do that is because He's already worked in me. So I work out what He has worked in, and we have the biblical balance here. So it's me. And by the way, the word, again, that word giving all diligence, as I just mentioned, implies hard work. It's a word that just sort of reeks of, of sweat and, and activity in a gymnasium and working hard. So you're working alongside of God, but ultimately He's the power source. All right, And then it says that we're to add, which has the idea of supply. And basically there's a picture here where we take our initial faith 
You can imagine faith being the foundation, if you will. And Peter's going to encourage us to add to that initial faith seven virtues that he's going to mention here. And he's not implying that these are sequential. In other words, you add virtue, then you're done with virtue, and you add knowledge, you're done with knowledge, you add temperance. That's not what he's implying. The idea here is it's, it's not sequential. It's you're working on one as you're working on all of the others. In other words, as you're working on your, your virtue, you're also working on knowledge at the same time. As you're working on knowledge, you're also working on temperance. And as you're working on temperance, you're working on patience. So it's not that you ever get one of them to the point you can check it off your list. You've arrived. You're as virtuous as you're ever going to be. And now you can start working on the next one. It doesn't work like that. You're working on all of them at the same time is the idea there. So we're pursuing the virtues. Um, and let me just start, we're going to look at these one by one. Um, that would be the effort needed, but let's look at the elements necessary. And as we go through these seven virtues, let me just ask you the question, do you have them in your life? Because they ought to be in your life, not perfectly. As Christians, we're still going to be working on them, but these ought to be in our lives, and we ought to be growing in them. And so again, we're dealing with simultaneous, not sequential growth, but that's what the idea is. So first of all, virtue. Virtue is the most general of the seven terms. It literally means excellence or moral excellence or goodness. One who fulfills the purposes of the Christian calling. This idea of excellence refers to fulfilling the purpose of something. Let me give you an example. You can take a car... And a car can be the most beautiful car on the outside. It can be waxed and all cleaned up and, and just perfect on the outside. But if the engine doesn't run properly, it's not an excellent car. Because the purpose of the car is what? Was transportation. Alright, so it can look as nice as you want, but it's got to fulfill its purpose. So, with Christians, we should strive for excellence in the sense of fulfilling our purpose. Let me actually quote, from, I quoted this earlier, but I want to look again at 1 Peter 2.9, also from Peter's pen. He actually uses this word in that verse. He says, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises. Now, the word praises is the same Greek word. Show forth the excellencies, the virtues of Him who's called you out of darkness and was marvelous light. In other words, the purpose for us as Christians is to emulate and therefore show forth to others the excellent character of our Lord. We are to strive to imitate His virtues and show that to others. And that is our purpose or our calling in our Christian life. So we could argue then that we're talking about here the pursuit of excellence, the pursuit of virtues. And this could be described as a dedication. And even though I'm arguing that this is not sequential, in one sense, I suppose, this first term could be what drives or motivates all the other virtues. In other words, you could describe this pursuit of excellence as a sort of a dedication kind of reminds me of Romans 12, 1 and 2, where in verse 1 there's the dedication. I beseech you therefore, brother, by the mercy of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is a reasonable service. Then in verse 2, you have the discipleship. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed, metamorphosed, so I'll get out of there, by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So we start with the pursuit of excellence. 
But we move also to the pursuit of knowledge. Add to your virtue knowledge. Knowledge would be the practical insight into the things of God. Uh, it would be coming into more and more knowledge about the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, it's one thing for a brand new Christian to lack knowledge about the Bible and lack knowledge about the Word of God and theology and things like that. But shame on us if we've been saved a long time and we still don't know very much about the Bible. 2 Timothy 2.15 encourages us to study, to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So we are to be constantly growing in our knowledge of Christ and in our knowledge of the Word of God. But moving on, we're to add to our knowledge temperance. Temperance has the idea of self-control. The power to control one's inner desires and cravings. It's the ability to get God-empowered victory over our sinful desires. Reminds me, I won't read the whole passage, but from Romans chapter 6, uh, beginning in verse 11, it says, Likewise, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Verse 14, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. So, as believers, we should be progressing in our temperance. We should, again, not implying that we will ever be sinless, but it's implying that we should be getting victory over our sinful desires. Moving on, we are added to our temperance patience, which literally, the word literally means to remain under... The word picture is under a burden, but you are, you're, you're, you're steady, you're steadfast, you're faithful, you're, you're not wilting under the pressure. We must seek for a God-sustained faithfulness in the midst of all our external pressures and trials. If temperance dealt with the pleasures of life, patience deals with the pressures of life. Now, I don't know about you, but patience is one that I sometimes don't do very well with. I'm not always as patient as I need to be. But as Christians, we need to be cultivating this ability to remain steadfast, to remain firm, regardless of what's going on around us. And that's part of our growth in Christ. But not only temperance, but we're also to add godliness would be the next virtue, which is the attitude of reverence that seeks to please God in all that we do. In other words, when it comes to our life, there are times that lines must be drawn between good and evil. We must seek a God-inspired devotion to Christ that clings to righteousness and separates from and opposes evil. If we're going to be godly, we cannot be straddling the fence when it comes to right and wrong. We've got to be willing to take a stand. We've got to be willing to stand for Christ regardless of what the world is saying or regardless of what the world is doing or regardless of the consequences to us. And folks, let me just say this. It's going to get harder and harder and harder in the society we're living in to stand for Christ. I mean, think about all the, the, the issues we're fighting in our society when we're talking about the gay marriage or the abortion or whatever. And if you take a stand for righteousness, it's going to get harder and harder. But if we're going to be godly, we're going to choose to stand for God regardless of the consequence. We're to our godliness, brotherly kindness. 
Brotherly kindness would be brotherly affection toward Christian brothers. It actually comes from the word where we get uh, the city of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, or some say brotherly shove today. But we should be loving one another. This refers to an affection, a kindness. Think about, for instance, all the one another passages in the New Testament where we're encouraged to help one another and edify one another and encourage one another and love one another. And that's what we're talking about here. We should be developing these affections toward other believers, other brothers and sisters in Christ. And then finally, we have the virtue of charity, which could be argued as the greatest of the Christian virtues. In 1 Corinthians 13, 13, Paul says there's faith, hope, charity, but the greatest of these is charity, which of course is the old English word for love. We're talking about love. And specifically here, it's agape love which is the, the self-sacrificing love of God that sacrifices itself for the sake of another. It really has nothing to do with emotions or feelings. The brotherly kindness does. Okay, that, that's an affection. But this agape love is the type of love where you love another person regardless of what you feel towards them. Matter of fact, our, our Lord Jesus commanded us to love our enemies. I would suggest that it's kind of hard to work, work up a warm, fuzzy feeling towards your enemy. I don't know about you, but I probably can't do that. But I can still agape them. I can still choose to act in a loving way towards them. So you could argue that agape love is godliness interacting with others. So in conclusion... All right, those are the elements necessary if we are diligently cooperating with God in our sanctification. That's what it's going to look like. How do you know if I'm growing? How do you know if I'm becoming more sanctified? Well, it's going to look like that. You're going to have those seven elements in your life, and you're going to be progressing in those elements even though you're not perfect. Now, that moves me to the final point, which would be the definite consequences of sanctification. And that's verses 8 to 11, there'll be two. And that is fruitful activity for Christ and full assurance in Christ. First of all, let's look at fruitful activity for Christ. Verse 8, for if these things be in you and about. Alright, what things? Well, he's referring back to the seven virtues we just listed. So if those seven virtues are in you and abounding, abounding means increasing. Simply put, you're growing in grace. You're not perfect, but you're growing in grace. So those seven elements are in your life. You're not perfect, but you're progressing in those areas. If that is true of you, and only if that is true of you, it says then that they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Barren has the idea of inactive or useless, worthless. Unfruitful is obvious, without fruit. Imagine a, an apple tree with no apples. It's worthless, it's useless. What good is it? Hopefully every one of us in this room, if we're saved, want to bear spiritual fruit for Christ. Do we want to influence others? I hope that we do. What Peter is saying is very simple. If you want to bear fruit, you've got to be growing and changing yourself. If you're not growing and changing, you will not be able to bear fruit. The very best you'll be able to do is merely human results. Let's say you're involved in a ministry of some sort. It doesn't have to be full-time. It can be just a ministry in this church. 
But if you're not growing and changing yourself, any fruit in that ministry is going to be purely, merely human fruit. That never lasts. It always fades. If you want God's fruit, you've got to be growing and changing. I've heard it illustrated this way too. Imagine you're trying to help someone else up. Maybe you're a mountain climber and you're trying to help someone else up. You can only help someone else up as high as you yourself are. And if they're going to go any higher, they need help from somebody else. And so that's another motivation for us to continue to grow and change. If we're working with other people in some sort of ministry, if we're going to be helping them grow, we've got to be growing ourselves. And that's the picture here. If you want to bear fruit, you've got to be uh, growing and changing yourself. And also, as we, as we move on in this verse, it, it says, You should be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then verse 9 says, But he that lacketh these things is blind that cannot see afar off. Cannot see afar off is the idea of nearsighted. Okay, if you're nearsighted, you can see things up close just fine. You can read words just fine, but you can't see things in the distance. It's all blurry. It's all fuzzy. You just can't see it. So the picture here is if someone is not growing and changing, if someone is not developing these seven virtues, it's like they're nearsighted. It's like they can't see. It, it, it's like they can't see the big picture. They can't see God's big picture. It's, it's like all they can see is their own little world, their own little problems, their own little selfish cocoon, if you will. But they're missing the big picture. They're missing the glory of God. They're missing everything else because they're not growing and changing. So everything's focused on themselves. And they're nearsighted. They're blind. They can't see. And that's the picture. Not only that, in some cases, they've forgotten they've been purged from their old sins. Folks, if a person is not growing and changing, it's going to be very hard to have assurance of salvation. Even if they are saved. If you're not growing and changing and see God working in your life, it's going to be very easy to even doubt your salvation forget what God has done for you in the past. And so, if we want to have fruitful activity for Christ, if we want to avoid spiritual amnesia, we've got to be growing and changing. But that brings me to the next and even more important point, I suppose. Another definite consequence of sanctification, not only fruitful activity for Christ, but full assurance in Christ. Verse 10, Wherefore, their brother, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you shall never fall. In some cases, if people aren't growing and changing, it may be because they've been saved, they've gotten away from the Lord, they need to get right. But in some cases, it may be because they've never really been saved in the first place. They may claim the name of Christ. They may have supposedly become a Christian at some point. But perhaps the reason there's no fruit in their life, and by the way, the Lord Jesus Himself said, By their fruits you shall know them. Matthew chapter 7, Sermon on the Mount. How do you discern the truth from the false believers? It's real simple. By their fruits you shall know them. A good tree is going to bear good fruit. A corrupt tree is going to bear corrupt fruit. You know them by their fruits. So a Christian ought to be producing good fruit. That doesn't mean temporarily a Christian can't get away from the Lord. And that doesn't mean that another person can always see the fruit. Because only God can see the heart. But a true Christian is always going to bear fruit. Therefore, what Peter is saying here in verse 10 is in essence, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. He's basically saying, look at your life, look for the fruit, 
laboriously examine yourself to make sure, we talked about calling earlier, to make sure that you have indeed been saved. Make your calling and election sure. Reminds me of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13.5 where he commands us to examine ourselves to see whether we be in the faith and to prove our own selves how that Jesus Christ is in us except we be reprobates. In other words, Paul is in essence saying take a test, examine your life, you claim the name of Christ, that's great, but make sure your life matches up to the life of a Christian. Unless you be a hypocrite or a fraud. So a couple of applications from this. I would say the first application is the most obvious. All of us need to be willing to examine ourselves to make our calling and election sure. And let me just share my own testimony why this is so important to me. I claim to be a Christian for years. I grew up in an independent Baptist church in South Charleston, West Virginia. Made a profession of faith when I was very young. Um, Knew all the Bible stories. I mean, I, I didn't have a choice about going to church. I went to church three times a week whether I wanted to or not. I mean, I was going before I was born. And I continued going after I was born. And I didn't have a choice in the matter. But the bottom line was, for me, when my, in my high school years, I was like so many young people. I talked the talk, but I didn't walk the walk. I would go to church on Sunday, but then the rest of the week, no one would know I was a Christian. I just lived just like everybody else. And I had no desire to please God or to serve Him or to live for Him. It was all about me. And it wasn't until I was a freshman at WVU and I got involved in Campus Light. I'm sort of making a long story very short here. But it was through Campus Light and the students in Campus Light that the Lord began to deal with me about my sin. And also deal with me, I wasn't sure I was saved. It wasn't a matter of knowing the gospel. I knew the gospel. Matter of fact, I played this little game where I sort of prayed this prayer to myself in case I wasn't saved. But please understand, praying a prayer never saved anybody. I challenge anyone to show me a verse where it says you have to pray a prayer to be saved. Praying a prayer doesn't save anybody. The bottom line was for me, see, I wasn't really repentant. I, I wanted sort of like fire insurance from hell. I wanted this free ticket to heaven, but I didn't want to change my life. Folks, God doesn't work that way. He doesn't offer fire insurance from hell. The gospel is something He offers, but you've got to be willing to turn from your sins and place your faith in Christ. And when I was 18 years old, I finally humbled myself and became sure of my salvation. I went and talked to my campus pastor and made sure of that in November of 1984. So that's why this is so important to me. And I've seen so many other young people that claim the name of Christ later on in life get saved. Um, I remember when I worked on the staff at the Wilds for three summers, and they would always hire people from the Christian colleges, and they would have this very stringent interview process. And of course, you had to clean to be saved, and have a good testimony, and have all these references and all that. So they had hired the people that they thought were the best Christians. But every summer I was there, there were staff members saved. I didn't say God right, I said saved. I remember one young man who was the son of a very well-known pastor. And I was like, if anybody's saved, this guy's saved. But according to his own testimony, let me tell you what he said. He said he was really saved that summer. He claims that he had had doubts earlier in life, and he talked to somebody at one point, and they basically simply said, well, if you pray to ask Christ, and yes, I have, and you're okay. And really never dealt with his doubts. And so we need to examine ourselves. Because, again... The bottom line is assurance of salvation in the Bible is always based, and let me make this statement, it's not based on foliage, it's based on fruit. You remember the parable of the sowers? Four different so soils, three of the four, a, a plant sprung up, 
But only one of the four ultimately bore fruit. The other two were false professions. In the Bible, evidence of true salvation is always fruit, never foliage. So we need to examine ourselves. But secondly, we need to be careful about how we give out the gospel. Again, please understand that it's more than praying the sinner's prayer. Um, we need to be very, very careful about that. The gospel is sometimes presented in such a way, it's like this ABC, repeat after me, magic formula. You say the words right, and presto change, and you, you know, you're going to heaven. I remember years ago, a former campus pastor telling me the story of at WVU. There was a group of young people that came to campus, as this guy supposedly trained them to be soul winners. And he took them around campus. I think he was later on going to take them to the beach for spring break or something. But he was giving them some training there in Morgantown. One afternoon, he comes back with 20 or 30 salvation decisions. And my campus pastor initially, his initial thought is, I'm going to resign. Because he'll labor a year and maybe see one or two saved if it's a good year. And, and like, you know, what's going on here? But what he did, the guy named the list of names and began to try to follow up on them. Some cases he couldn't find them. You know, the addresses or numbers made them bogus. A lot of them were international students that he did finally find who seemed to have no recollection or conception whatsoever what they even talked about. You know, in one case, I think he specifically asked, did they talk to you about Jesus? Do you know any of the guys? I don't know. I don't remember. So probably, I suspect what has happened, they're going around, you don't want to go to hell, do you? You want to go to heaven? Why don't you pray this prayer? Or something like that. And they got 20 or 31 notches in the gospel gun belt and they to the next town. Folks, that's very, very dangerous. And we particularly need to be careful with children. Some of the worst gospel presentations I've seen are presentations made to children. Because you can get children very easily to do something to please you. And it is not hard at all to get a child to pray a prayer. Asking God to say that. But do they really understand the concept of their sinfulness before a holy God? And do they really understand the concept of the need to repent and turn from their sins? We need to be very, very careful about how we explain the gospel. Even terms that we use. What does asking Jesus into your heart mean? If, that's not a biblical term. What does that mean to someone who is unfamiliar with the holy God and sinfulness and all that? And so we need to be careful how we present the gospel. And also understand this. There is a difference biblically between eternal security and assurance of salvation. It's two entirely different things. Eternal security is a doctrine. It's a doctrine that I can show you from the Word of God. It's a doctrine I showed you earlier in this passage. It's the idea that if you are saved, you cannot lose that. You are eternally safe and secure. That's a biblical doctrine. I can show you that dogmatically. But assurance of salvation deals with a different question. It doesn't deal with, can I lose salvation? It deals with, did I ever have it to start with? See, that's a totally different question. And the thing about assurance of salvation is, I can't give you assurance of salvation. Only the Holy Spirit can. I can teach you eternal security, but I cannot give you assurance of salvation. That is something that's not mine to give. Only God can give you that. And so if you've ever been to a soul reading program and they say, you've got to give them assurance of salvation, that's nonsense. You can't do that. I never tell someone, even if I hear them pray the prayer, I never tell them you're saved. I may say, if you meant that with your heart, then you're saved. You're a child of God now, or something such as that. But I don't know. I don't know what's in their heart. Only God knows. So let me encourage us to be very, very careful about how we present the gospel. 
Now, having said all that, let me just move on. And finally, at the end of verse 10, it says, um, to make sure, calling election sure, for if you do these things, you shall never fall. The word fall here in the original is in the aorist tense. It refers to a one-time occurrence. I don't think we're referring here to just a stumble as a Christian, but I think this is referring to an irretrievable fall, such as in Jude, verse 24, where it says, Now unto him that's able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Bottom line is, if we are growing and changing, we can be assured that we are ultimately not going to fall, that we're going to be with God in heaven. We can be confident of that. And not only that, I mean, it's one thing to be sure of heaven, and that's, that's, that's great. But above and beyond that, even verse 11, it says, For so an entrance shall be ministering you abundantly unto the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, it's one thing to get into heaven. It's another thing to have an abundant entrance into heaven. What, what on earth is an abundant entrance into heaven? Well, I think it would be the opposite as being saved so as by fire, which 1 Corinthians 3 talks about, which would be the individual that has the right foundation, that being Christ, but they, instead of building... Gold, silver, and precious stones on top of that they built with wood, hay, and stubble. So yeah, they'll be in heaven, but they'll have nothing to show for their life. An abundant interest would be just the opposite of that. An abundant interest would be someone who lived their life for the glory of God. I think an example of that may be the example of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, which to me is a fascinating account. Because if you read Acts chapter 7, Stephen is being stoned. He's about to become the first Christian martyr. He looks up into heaven... And he sees Christ at the right hand of God. And that's not unusual. Everywhere you read of Christ in the New Testament after the resurrection, he's always at the right hand of God. That part is not different. But it is different in that usually he's pictured as doing what at the right hand of God? Set. Right? He's seated. He's, his work is done. That's that very symbolic, especially in Hebrews. He's seated at the right hand of God. His work is completed. His finish is done. He's seated. But... This is the only time I can think of in the New Testament. He's actually pictured not as seated, but Stephen looks up and he's standing at the right hand of God. Now maybe I'm reading more into this than I should. But I am looking at this as the Son of God actually standing to welcome home the first martyr of the Christian church. And I'm convinced with all my heart that when Stephen got to heaven, he got a well done, thou good and faithful servant. And that's what all of us ought to be striving for. But, but here's the thing, once again, just like you're not going to have assurance of your salvation if you're not growing and changing, you're certainly not going to have an abundant inference if you're not growing and changing. And so this is yet another motivation to continue to grow in these seven virtues. So in, in conclusion, let me ask a couple questions. Are you progressing in Christ or are you basically going nowhere in your Christian life? Have you reached a plateau and you're just sitting there and you're not progressing? If that's the case, you're going to be very ineffective in your service for Christ. may even ultimately bring doubts about your salvation. You need to recommit to supply your part. Matter of fact, let me one other thing I want to note real, real quick here. In verse 11, when it says, An entrance shall be ministered unto you, 
That's actually the same word as the word in verse 5. Um, and besides this, giving all diligence, add to your uh, faith virtue and your virtue not knowledge. They had, the idea of supplying is in both these terms. And the idea is if you supply your part, God's going to supply his part. And so we need to supply our part and then he'll supply ours. So are you progressing? And secondly, are you sure of your salvation? Maybe there's someone here that is kind of like I was. Maybe you're a part of this church. But maybe you've doubted your salvation for some time. Or maybe you've never even claimed to be saved. I don't know. But are you sure? But here's the bottom line. A profession of faith doesn't bring assurance of salvation. But progression in faith does. Alright, and that's really the whole essence of this passage. Peter is saying, you claim the name of Christ. That's great. That's good. But if you're really saved, you need to be progressing. You need to be growing in grace. And if you are doing that, then you can be confident without a doubt of your salvation. And it will give you that confidence. So I hope that you will, will think about those things. Let me ask everybody to close, bow your head and close your eyes. And I'm going to pray for us here in a second. Maybe we can sing a closing song. Um, before we do that, I just want to ask a couple questions and then pray. So everybody, was, if you could just bow your head and close your eyes. How many would say, Pastor Dave, I may not be perfect. Matter of fact, I know I'm not perfect, but I am 100% sure beyond a shadow of a doubt that if I were to die, I would be in heaven. I know I'm saved. There's no doubts about that. And I can indicate that by an uplifted hand. Could you just raise your hand and put it right back down? Okay, thank you so much. And a second question that I'd like to ask is, how many of you say, Pastor Dave, you know, I am not 100% sure. Maybe I know I'm not saved, or maybe there's just some nagging doubts because I just don't see a lot of fruit in my life, and that worries me. I'm concerned. I'm not 100% sure of my salvation. I'd like for you to pray for me. And I promise I won't point you out. I just want to pray for you. If there's anybody like that, could you just lift your hand? Just very briefly, just put it up and right back down. Anybody at all? Okay, I think I saw one. Any others? Okay, I see a second. Anybody else? And I'll pray for you just in a second. Okay, third question would be for those of you that, okay, raise your hand. You know you're saved. There's no doubt about that. But you have to honestly admit that your progression in Christ has not been what it should be. And maybe you've slowed down a little bit in your sanctification and you need to recommit yourself to really working on those virtues and adding them to your life. And before God, you just like to indicate that and say, will you pray for me that God would help me to begin to grow again? Like I said, just could you raise your hand and put it right back down? Anybody like that? Okay, I see a few hands that way as well. Let me go ahead and pray. And then we'll close an invitational song in a moment. But let me go ahead and go to the word, Lord in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I'd like to thank you for the opportunity to... Um, to be here again. I thank you for the opportunity to present this message from your word. But Lord, we would like to pray for these that raised their hand. I saw two, Lord, that indicated they weren't 100% sure of salvation. You know their hearts better than I do. I, I really don't know whether they're saved or not, but you do. So I just pray that you'd work in their lives, work in their hearts, help them be willing to talk to someone about this to make sure uh, there's no reason for them to doubt. They can make sure today. So please work in their hearts that they would do that if it's your will and draw them to yourself. I pray also for these that raise their hand, uh, admitting that they need to recommit to growth, that they need to grow and change and, and recommit to working in these virtues in their life. Help them to do that. And I just pray that you give them the strength to change and give them the desire to change, work in their heart, both the will and do of your good pleasure, and pray that they would work that out for your glory. So we just pray for these as well. But please be with us now as we sing. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, brother, you have a song for us?